Welcome to AI Ethics and Radiology, Emory University Center for Ethics podcast on the applications of artificial intelligence in radiology. This podcast will examine a number of issues related to visual processing research in radiology and residency training. My name is John Banger. I'm a professor at the Center for Ethics at Emory University. And for this podcast, I'm very pleased to be interviewing Dr. Elizabeth Kropinski. Dr. Kropinski is a professor and is vice chair for research in the departments of radiology and imaging sciences, psychology, and biomedical informatics at Emory University in Atlanta. She's a renowned investigator in the arena of perception and cognition in medical imaging, where she has studied how image information, automated enhancements, and human factors influence image interpretation. Prior to coming to Emory, Dr. Kopinski served as the Associate Director of Evaluation for the Arizona Telemedicine Program, and she co-directed the Southwest Telehealth Resource Center at the University of Arizona in Tucson where she led multiple research initiatives on utilizing telemedicine to improve patients' access to care. Dr. Kropinski's research has explored the effects of image manipulation on clinical observer performance, and she's investigated how experience level and fatigue can impact interpretive accuracy and efficiency. Her eye-tracking experiments have demonstrated how training levels and expertise, display type, and reading environments can affect performance. Dr. Kropinski received her BA from Cornell University and her master's in experimental psychology from Montclair State University in New Jersey, where she was named most outstanding psychology graduate student and most outstanding graduate student in arts and sciences. She completed her postgraduate training at the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Radiology and received her PhD also in experimental psychology from Temple University in Philadelphia. Dr. Kropinski has been a leader in numerous professional organizations, including past presidencies in the American Telemedicine Association and the Medical Image Perception Society. She's a past chair of the Society for Imaging Informatics in Medicine. She has served on the program committees of more than 30 academic societies, and she's contributed to more than 280 peer-reviewed scientific publications. Dr. Kropinski received the Academy of Radiology Research Distinguished Investigator Award in 2014 and the American Telemedicine Association's President's Award for Individual Leadership in 2017. Dr. Kropinski, thanks so much for agreeing to do this interview. I'd like to start with a question about the research that you've done on visual processing, both in humans and non-humans. And my question is as general as it could be. What's the most interesting or significant finding that you've come across? You know, I think it, it, it's varied over the years, um, you know, but from the interesting point of view, and I put interesting in quotes because that could mean any number of things, um, you know, it's, it's how much we don't know and how incredibly variable uh, human visual and cognitive systems are in terms of what the capabilities are and, and how absolutely amazing it can be sometimes what an individual can see and think compared to somebody else. Um, but I would have to say that the most interesting study I ever did was a completely unfunded, uh, one of those like way out there type studies um, where I had known a, a pathologist um, 
from 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 the west coast and, and we had met at a variety of meetings because i've done a lot of work in pathology as well and one day at lunch we were just kind of like riffing and talking and stuff and just out of the blue i you know and we were talking about some study that and I, at some point i said you know a pigeon could do that uh-huh. and he looked at me he said yeah same thing in pathology and we looked at each other and said boy you know boy that would make a heck of a study sometime and a few just kind of you know let it go because nobody's ever going to fund that but a few years later he found a colleague at the university of iowa who happens to be the world's expert in operant conditioning and and pigeons and this would be ed wasserman right exactly yeah and yeah uh, i did i did some homework that is Ed, and he, you know, and, and pigeons have been used forever. I mean, B.F. Skinner, you go, you go back in history, and uh, they were used in World War II, actually, for, for yeah. guiding uh, mm-hmm. planes and dropping missiles. They were, you know, the, the earliest drones, um, and the mm-hmm. pigeons were the pilots, and they were the ones who they had trained to do all this kind of cool stuff, and, you know, homing pigeons. So pigeons are incredibly intelligent, as well as very good visual systems. I mean, birds in general have very good visual systems. And again, just chance connections and stuff. And the three of us said, yeah, let's just do this. Let's see how good pigeons are with medical images and finding targets. And so, you know, he, he wrote some internal grants and they kind of never went anywhere. But eventually we just said, let's just do this. And so on my side, I collected a bunch of uh, images and we, we tried to find something that, you know, would, would be ecologically valid for the pigeon. And so we, we settled on mammogram images um, where there would be masses and then microcalcifications. Thinking, well, the microcalcifications, that looks like bird seed. And the masses, you know, maybe that's a bug or something. I don't know what pigeons eat, but they eat birds, you know, birds eating bugs. And it's a complex background. And then our pathology colleague, uh, he found some pathology images as well. And basically we gave these to Ed and he set up a you know, classic operant conditioning study mm-hmm. where we trained the pigeons uh, to detect targets and under a variety of circumstances and so on in the radiology and the pathology images. So there was different levels of complexity. There was, you know, uh, black, uh, grayscale images for radiology. There were color images for pathology. And essentially the goal of the study, you know, I mean, in all seriousness, it did have a serious aspect to it, was to demonstrate that humans are not unique uh, mm. that we can learn an awful lot by studying the visual systems of other types of beings, uh, in this case, pigeons. Um, but there's an awful lot to learn uh, from these other uh, other studies. And what we found was that there are some, indeed some parallels. Um, the pigeons actually did quite well at detecting uh, the targets, uh, for example, in the, the mammogram images, they were able to detect masses and microcalcifications. Surprisingly, just like human trainees, um, they had an easier time of finding the microcalcifications than they did the mass targets. And interestingly, computer-aided detection systems 
have an easier time finding microcalcifications than they do masses. Um, and we found that there were some very stupid pigeons. <laughs> there was one pigeon that just didn't get it. Right. So he, they would not be accepted into a radiology residency program. Exactly. But they got the pathology test. So maybe that one would have gotten into the pathology program. So, I mean, there was an awful lot that we learned in that study. Um, and we never claimed that the goal was for pigeons to take over radiologists. And the funny thing is this study came out, was published right at RSMA time. And, <laughs> you know, I was sitting in the bus one day going home from the conference and people started to talk about the pigeon study and how the pigeons were going to take over the world. And I just could not keep my mouth shut and said, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. We're, you know, we're, we're saying that we can learn a lot from these systems. And, you know, people got right. it. And there was a lot of good back and forth and, and humor and stuff. But, you know, when it came down to it, I really think that that was one of my most interesting uh, studies, because, again, it really showed the parallels that exist uh, between humans and other uh, animals with similar visual systems. And I guess the, the cool thing about doing research with the pigeons is their, their brains are, what, about the size of a pea or, or some, <laughs> somewhere maybe, between yeah. a pea and a pea in it, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, but yet, I, uh, from what, from the little that I know, they're, 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 a lot of their brain is devoted to visual processing. Yes. And therefore, I guess from a purely research methodological point of view, they are wonderful uh, candidates to, to do research on because it, it, it's a very anatomically specific kind of thing that you're looking at. And there's not, not a lot of noise from a lot of other brain areas that you have to deal with. Exactly. And they do learn. And we actually showed that not only do they learn, but they generalize that learning to other tasks. And that's, that's precisely what humans and what, what, humans what training do radiologists well. do as well, is they learn and then they generalize and they're able to apply what they learn to another similar task. By the way, how was their area under the curve? I mean, in, in, I'm serious, uh, their area in, in comparison to humans uh, with regard to your... your no, uh, their area under research. the curve, it, it, it was up to the level, we compared it to studies. So the data sets that we used were from published studies that, that um, Rich and I had done in pathology and radiology. And the pigeons were actually able to do uh, very similar in terms of area under the curve, pure detection uh, comparable to what the humans were doing. Right. And again, followed the pattern. Like I said, with mammography, it was, they didn't do so well on the masses, but they did so on the microcalcifications. Um, right. So it was actually uh, very similar to what the humans were able to do. Uh, but again, uh, yes. I, 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 I put the word detection there. Notice right. I never right. said diagnosis. I never said that they made recommendations or anything in the patient. Or, or, or that they know the meaning of what they're looking exactly. at, right? Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. able very, to very detect important. the targets, which is literally what RSC is all about. Right. So that uh, allows me to segue to uh, my next question, which is that you and our faculty in the Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences at, at Emory, uh, you are engaged in teaching uh, young men and women to see things that other people do not see. And uh, I, I'm just really interested in, in how the faculty um, engineers a learning process for, you know, for something like that. Um, uh, so 
how, 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 how does that how does that work? <laughs> how does one train a processing system, you know, to, to, to do this kind of very specific kind of work? It, it is an interesting question because it's it's unlike other types of visual learning tasks to some extent. So, you know, in, in some cases, like I said, with the pigeons, you can show them the target repeatedly you give them feedback you know the pigeons when they did it we gave them you know some grain and so on um you know with with human beings with resident trainees you don't sit there and give them you know Reese's pieces every time they get the answer right so it's it's clearly not operant conditioning although to some extent feedback obviously is important sure um, you know, and to some extent, you know, I've been studying the sort of the, the development of expertise has been a large part of what I've been doing over the years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a fascinating subject. We don't have all the answers. Um, but I think, you know, some of the things that are important, well, one is there is really something innate about uh, someone who goes into radiology. I, I think that to some extent, um, they, they end up being either visually or cognitively or the whole visual brain system more amenable to this task. Uh, I don't think that their visual systems and their brains are any different than anybody else's. Um, you know, when you test visual acuity, when you test contrast sensitivity, all those things, their visual systems are no better than your mind. Um, and it, it's just something in the connections. And, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, when you talk to radiologists and when I've done a lot of my studies, a lot of the times you can sit down with a resident and, you know, you know, very quickly within the first few weeks, they got it. Yeah. It, you know, it's like, you know, Veronica Lake back in the old movies. It's like, what is it? Um, I don't know, but they got it and they're yeah. going to be a good radiologist. And there's some others that, boy, they're going to have a tough time, maybe to the extent of maybe you don't even belong in radiology. But, you know, very early on in that process, when you get your, your class of radiology residents coming in, a lot of times you will know, boy, we got it. And this one doesn't. And yeah. I think, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I of course, that's that's pretty common in just about every uh, residency mm -hmm. program. And and I must tell you, uh, autobiographically, um, the, the fact that physics, that vectors in physics ended my pre-med career about <laughs> 50 years ago, that has always bothered me. It's always bothered me. And uh, I was at a, a cocktail party with, uh, with some faculty a few years ago, and I was talking to one of our physics professors. So uh, naturally, I... You know, I, I said that to him. And as I as I said that to him, he actually winced and he said, you know, we hate to teach vectors in, in physics because we found that you either get it or you don't get it. Uh, and try as I might, and I was a very diligent student. I just never got those fellas. I just could not understand uh, that that stuff. And you know that that phenomenon of what you're talking about, the knack for something. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, boy, it just does seem to be, there's got to be some innate stuff going on in certain brains that just doesn't exist in other brains. No, exactly. And and what it is, who knows? Because, you know, there, there's been a ton of studies, you know, talking to radiologists, trying to find that common thread. 
you know, give them any number of cognitive and psychological tests, you know, mm. what is it? The, the one thing that I've been able to find and is they like puzzles, whether it's jigsaw puzzles, Sudoku puzzles, word search, crossword puzzles, they like solving things. And that's a lot about what the radiology task is about. So that sort of explains the cognitive component, the visual component, that, that's a little more difficult. Um, like I said, I, I've sat down with residents in some of my studies and I do eye tracking studies. So mm -hmm. I watch how they search an image and I, we can learn an awful lot about that in terms of how training develops, how expertise develops, why people make mistakes and so on. And like I said, I can tell simply by looking at the way they look at an image very early on in their residency, how good they're going to be. Yeah, and that's the knack, right? That's, that's the knack. They know where to look. Exactly. Yeah. And they're not perfect, but I can tell a lot of the times the good ones from the, the, the less good. I don't want to call them bad, yeah. but, you know, from those who are going to have more of, of a struggle about it. And that doesn't say it's constant because I've seen some that all of a sudden, you know, I, I get them in the first few weeks. I've done a say where I look at them longitudinally and then you bring them back in about a year and they've had that, uh, they get it. And I've, I've seen it happen sometimes in between sessions where it's like, yeah, I, I, I get it. I know I finally see yeah. what it is that, that that radiologist kept trying to pound into my brain and boom, they right. get it. The, the light, then, somehow, somehow the light exactly. goes on. By the way, there's a real analogy here between what you're talking about and the world that I live in in bioethics. Uh, and, and, and that is the people who are good in bioethics, you can give them a case study or a case scenario. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll immediately go to the trigger points, to the, the bullet points, the really important mm -hmm. uh, uh, materials or the elements of the story that form the, the, the moral narrative or the moral dilemma. And other people who aren't good at that stuff, they just sort of flounder all around. I mean, they just don't have that that homing, I guess, kind of knack that, you know, that, that, that we're talking about that you could probably find in just about any performance Yep. Uh, a related kind of uh, uh, of task. Oh, yeah. I think so. And, and again, I don't think, he had, it, it, and it's so hard to explain because, you know, yeah. you'd love to say, well, because they spent their entire childhood doing search tasks and, you know, or they were hunters or whatever. And it's like, mm. no, you can't. First, there's just something about the way they're wired Maybe yeah. there's some experiences that contributed to it, but I, and I agree with you. It's I, I would think that in every profession that there is something that just kind of your, 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 your cognitive systems, your visual, whatever your, your entire being is better suited to that yeah. than something else. And if you yeah. try that something else, no matter how hard you're, really want to or you know i mean that's why you find people who you know my parents wanted me to do this but <laughs> i just don't want to this is what i am drawn to in a sense and you hear that so often you know and a lot of times when i interview you know potential residents and so on they it, it's they're drawn to they feel comfortable in that right, and i think right. it has a lot to do with how they're wired yeah and that's, that's wonderful say that doesn't develop know. clearly i mean clearly they develop over their entire career but there's, there is something there that draws them into the profession. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. 
because that's another thing that I wanted to ask you. So you, uh, you remarked about uh, the development of expertise a little earlier. And, and at one point in my career, I was very interested in that. Uh, and I, as a matter of fact, I remain interested in it. But um, uh, we, we know that uh, uh, a clinician's expertise certainly continues to develop really, I guess, throughout their career. Um, but what I'm interested in is your newly graduated, your newly minted, radiologist who's just come out of his or her radiology program uh, versus how that individual is going to be five years, 10 years uh, down the road. Um, could, could, could you talk about that kind of evolution of, of expertise with, with a person like, like that? Yeah, I think, you know, let, let, I'm going to take a step back for one second, though, to look at sort of what happens in in, in that residency period, because we, we do see um, certain things happen. So there's a dramatic change between years one and two. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, they come in, they know nothing except, like I said, physiology, anatomy, and so on. And then they spend a year doing it. And then, you know, there's this dramatic increase in efficiency. So I see it in the visual search patterns and uh, accuracy. You know, they start to get the task, they're better able to diagnose, and they do it in a more efficient manner. And then there's, you know, from year two to three, there's a slight increase. And then from three to four, there's this other jump. And so you clearly see that. And then I think that happens once they're out as well. So you'll probably see another jump once they're done with fellowship, but only on that particular area. So when somebody goes into, you know, an MSK fellowship, cardiothoracic, you're going to see a, an increase in that mm -hmm. their breast skills, their, you know, whatever's not what they're doing is potentially going to see a degradation mm. because they're not, they're not doing it. And I think what happens as you, you go into those first few years and then, you know, at, throughout your career, what I've seen, what happens is you do, you do two things. One, you, you, you are exposed to that huge variability in, yes, the types of disease processes, but I think it's more than normal. You learn the incredible variation that's there in normal, and you learn to ignore that to some extent. Mm -hmm. And that's how you become more efficient, is you learn to ignore what's normal, and you learn, like you said, to hone in right, on right. So what, you, what's, you... what's potentially, what's that perturbation? You yeah. learn to see the perturbations in the images. And it, then you say, okay, that perturbation is something or nope, sorry, that was nothing. And I yeah. think that really is where expertise takes place. I must say, I, I, I have one of your images from one of your studies. And um, it, it, it's so interesting where you compare a novice, uh, perhaps a radiology resident, to a more expert. And do, you were doing the visual eye tracking. And the novice's eye tracking is just all over the place, uh, uh, whereas the, the more expert uh, experienced person is extraordinarily efficient. I mean, there's maybe just four squiggly lines and, you know, and it just goes right to where the, uh, uh, the there is a danger of that though, is, isn't there? I mean, because sometimes you're so used to being efficient and you, it, it's, it's kind of like you've, you've overlearned something and 
there is a danger of missing stuff when you get mm-hmm. really good at something like that, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. There, there, there's always the danger of missing and whether it's, you know, something along there, there's different names for, it. I mean, one is satisfaction of search where, you know, there's yes. potentially more than one target in an image. You, you find something, it kind of fits the history. It fits everything else. It fits your expectations. And so you've satisfied your search. So you say, okay. And you've, you've missed something else that you potentially should have found. Or, you know, uh, they're, they're, you're, you're, you're tired. I mean, it's the, I've, I've spent over 10 years looking at fatigue and radiology. You're, you're, you know, it's dedicated as all heck, but by the end of a 12 hour shift, sure, you're potentially missing things because you're not spending the same time or, or doing as thorough of a search as, as you would have when you were fresh. So yes, errors do occur. And, you know, we, we, they fall into different categories as to why they occur and how they occur. Uh, and there's a lot of tools that are being developed to help us uh, do that. But I think, you know, errors are always going to occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not the, the, the fault of the radiologist. Um, you know, it's, there, there's errors every day in every, every area of life. Um, some are just more, more uh, you know, impactful than others. Um, but yes, errors do occur, and even the most expert person makes errors. Indeed. And that's the perfect segue to talking about artificial intelligence, right? So what do you think, sitting where you do, reading the research, the AI research that you do, what's your view from 30,000 feet on this uh, uh, AI research that's going on today? You know, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, it follows in a lot of the research, similar research that been, that's been going on for 30 years. I mean, the minute radiology went digital, people were looking at ways to have computers analyze the images. So it's not new. Uh, you know, it was computer-aided detection mm-hmm. and, and diagnosis before, and it's merged as the technologies to do the analyses you know, as we got the machine learning techniques, the deep learning, I mean, it evolved into something very different. You know, from that 30,000 point of view, I, I, it, it's, it's a work in progress. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Um, it, it may, it, it will eventually um, be a very important part of radiology. It is becoming, um, and it will change the way radiologists interact with images. No, I don't think it's going to, ever replace the radiologist. Uh, Like I said, from my perspective, one, there is simply too much variability in normal and abnormal appearance of things um, that there are, a a human is just, there's so many ways that a human being is better than the computer. Um, And I honestly don't think that a computer will ever match what the human does. That's very fascinating. So you're talking about just the just the, 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 the human relationship to the variability of images. Uh, yep. right? the, the, the variability the in the images, the ability to um, learn from one image to the next and so on. And I know, you know, AI is all about doing that. Um, but like I said, there is still something very fundamental about the human brain system that is far more complex and far more efficient and effective than I think the computer can be. It's going to be a tool. It will be an aid to the radiologists um, and especially in things like detection and possibly even providing uh, diagnoses and likelihood of, of 
um, of uh, malignancy and so on. But there's far more to what the radiologist does than just finding and saying it's something. And that's where, you know, the radiologist will still and always come into play. So it is the capacity of that radiologist to interpret what is what is going on that right now uh, our AI models cannot do uh, simply because they they detect things yep. uh, rather than uh, do more sophisticated kind of cognitive processing of what it is they're detecting. Exactly. To, 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 to explain it, to diagnosis, and then to communicate that to the rest of the care team. You know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's all well and fine to detect something and put a little arrow and say, okay, here's what I think is a nodule. Um, the referring provider needs a little bit more to go on than that. And uh-huh. that's where the radiologist and their expertise comes into play. All right. So let, let us talk about the state of the art right now yep. in AI models. Uh, there's a good deal of literature that is coming out right now, has been coming out for the last year, that really contradicts or runs contrary to all the hype that we have heard about AI models two, three years ago. Uh, I'm referring to studies that are saying, you know, these these models do not generalize well. Uh, they do not perform better than... Uh, a double read, for example, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so, uh, uh, and and I think we're in an era right now where we're zeroing in on the flaws of these studies that have been coming out. And I wonder if you could uh, talk about about some of the uh, challenges that these uh, uh, studies have not really been able to cope with very well. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the challenge is a, a lot of what I've been, been talking about, um, which is, like you said, it's the generalizability issue. It's because there is such variability in the human anatomy, in the systems that these are acquired on, that the technologists who acquire the images, the age of the, the CT system, I mean, every step mm-hmm. along the imaging chain adds noise. And noise is a killer for the human visual system as well as for the computers. And I think what the problem is, from my perspective, is, and there was you know sort of the same thing 20 years ago, and it it it, it, it it's you know history repeats itself. Um, there's a fundamental belief, I think and I may be completely biased, among the developers of a lot of these out, not everyone, but a lot of the developers, that what they're developing is a tool that will be 100% sensitivity and specificity, AUC 1.0, and yes, deep in their little minds, it's going to take over the job of the radiologists, and it's going to do everything that they're not doing. Well, to me, that's an entirely wrong way of approaching it it should be viewed as a tool to help the radiologists. And so from my perspective, the fundamental flaw that we're seeing is you've got these developers that are creating these uh, algorithms, running them on data sets, um, looking at uh, a couple of radiologists and having them look at the images too and say, oh, look, they're as good as those two radiologists. 
Okay, well, that's nice. <laughs> that's those two radiologists on that particular data set. And that's not really what we want to know. What we really want to know is if I were to take that radiologist, put them in the clinical situation with a brand new set of images and put your algorithm on it, what would they then do with the output of your algorithm? And then how would that impact their decision? And then how would that impact patient care? Mm -hmm. and, it's and that's that a whole, type of, it's that's a whole nother task. Whole nother task. And from my perspective, that really should be where we need to go with these algorithms. It's not, can they match the performance of a radiologist? Yes, that's interesting, but we know the radiologists are flawed as well. There's false positives, false negatives. When I read and review papers on, based on AI, I always ask, and I rarely get, I want a table that shows me the, the false negatives and the false positives that the radiologists are making. And I ask them, is there a pattern to what's happening? Mm. And I rarely get that back in, in the revision of the paper because they really don't look at it that way. Mm -hmm. All they care about is, do I do as good as a radiologist? Well, if you can do as good as a radiologist, let me just use a radiologist who can do more than what your little algorithm is doing. It really should be, how is that going to impact the decision-making process of the radiologist and impact patient care? That really is what these tools should be looking at. And, and yes, I agree. So, you know, maybe we're not quite that far along in the development process, but if they're at that point where people are claiming that, you know, they, they are as good as radiologists, then they really should be doing the types of observer studies that, that I talk about. And, and so also implicit in what you're saying is that a, a lot of these uh, uh, persons who develop these models do not well, number one, they're, most of them, my impression is they're not radiologists. And, and consequently, number two, um, they, they don't have a comprehensive view of all of the things that radiologists do. So that just uh, what you were describing just now, this may be the next era of AI technology and AI research in terms of complementing radiologic performance and radiologic functioning. Very much so. I, I agree 100% with that. That, that, that more often than not, I, there are a lot of radiologists and, and, you know, ophthalmologists, dermatologists. I mean, this is going on in a whole variety of fields, image-based, you know, AI tools. Um, but I, I agree there, there are many circumstances where the radiologists, the dermatologists, pathologists are involved and some, some are developing the schemes and some are looking at them. And I think th th those are really the more relevant ones. The, there's that whole other batch though, of you know, graduate students, postdocs, uh, you know, faculty members and so on. And they're, they're putting these in journals that have nothing to do really with, with medical imaging at all. Mm -hmm. To some extent, I really see these as, you know, they're, they're simply opportunistic papers to some extent. And I really hate to say that, but I mean, they're, they're, you can download data sets from the web. There's publicly available data sets. You can download and tweak any number of these deep learning, machine learning algorithms and make it, you know, do a little tweak and now it's, it's yours. Um, and then you publish it in an engineering journal and there's never any follow-up to it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we put it out there. We got our publication. We showed it. It matched. You know, we got some A- AUC, and it goes into a vacuum. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, you got your results. You did a study and got published, but it 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 it, it doesn't have any impact. It's never going to be used. There, yeah, that's what's missing is that connection with the radiologist or the pathologist or someone who's going to say, yeah, that's a meaningful algorithm. Let's try to implement it on you know, another data set or in the clinical setting. Right. So the, so the real world application, other than just uh, uh, fabricating this in the laboratory. Exactly. And, and it doesn't have any really uh, clinical uh, relevance. All right. Well, this is wonderful. So let me end with, with this question. Is it premature to start thinking about how we should be training our residents uh, in order to uh, have them learn and, and collaborate with these new AI technologies. Do you think that the technologies are advanced enough to be uh, telling our residents, look, these technologies are going to inform an awful lot of what you do over the course of your career. So let us start thinking about how we're going to integrate these technologies into the workflow and the work. Is it too soon to be doing that right now or, um, or, or, or no? Oh, absolutely not. No, I think I, I think we absolutely have to integrate it. And, you know, let's go farther back and integrate it into medical school as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's absolutely it's here. I mean, we are using AI systems. There are a lot of good ones out there. Uh, and there are a number of them that are already working in, 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 in radiology, pathology. I mean, they're being used. They're, they're FDA approved. They're on clinical workstations. They are already a part of what a resident is going to encounter. And absolutely, I think we need to uh, in, inform them, educate them and train them in their use. Um, and, and, and that has implications as well. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing to consider, you know, a, radiolo- a radiology resident now who's being brought up in a world where AI is available compared to someone years ago. That fundamentally changes the learning process. Mm-hmm. Are we bringing up a generation that relies on the AI or are we bringing up a generation that collaborates with the AI? Very different. Yeah, and and it and is- scary too. You remarked earlier about a, 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 a de-skilling phenomenon Right, that that happens so that if I simply concentrate on, let's say, mammography uh, rather than other kinds of uh, uh, imaging interpretation, those skills competence might degrade, as you know, as 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 you said, given given that concentration that I'm having. So I, that's I guess that's a general concern, isn't it, about radiology? If if AI continues to get better and better and better at these detection uh, issues, well, and I don't think it's limited to radiology, unfortunately, exactly. or to medicine. Right. Sure. I mean, AI is such a part of so many things in the world. Uh, you know, AI is making driving our cars. Are are we going to lose all of our 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 driving skills? AI is driving the way we shop. Right. It's taking a lot of, you know, input and creativity and so on out of a lot of the processes that we do. Um, And it's an interesting question as to how we as human beings adapt to all of this. It's 
science fiction novels and movies about, you know, the computers make all the decisions yeah. and then what happens to humans? They, they become blobs essentially. And, you know, hopefully that is not the vision of the future that it really is much more of a, a collaborative and the, the, the task of the resident is going to evolve. Perhaps what AI is going to do is help them become experts faster, mm. which would be ideal. It will help them avoid mm -hmm. fatigue. It will help them learn more complex tasks faster than they would have compared to residents even five, 10 years ago. So I think there's huge positive potential in AI as long as we think about how we implement it and what we do with it. That is a wonderful point on which to end. So, uh, Elizabeth, thank you so very, very much for, uh, for your time and your insights. I, I enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. Thanks again to Dr. Elizabeth Kopinski for her insights on perception and cognition in radiology and radiology training. Thanks also to Sam Kim, who did the audio production of this podcast, and to the staff at Emory University's Center for Ethics, who maintain the podcast webpage. We also thank the Advanced Radiology Services Foundation and Emory University's Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences for their financial support. And in case you're wondering, that's me at the piano. Please follow the projects and activities of Emory's Center for Ethics on Facebook and Twitter and at our website, ethics.emory.edu. I'm John Banjo. Join us for future podcasts and thanks for listening.